This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning, sports fans. Good morning, statistics fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all of my favorite topics collide. We're here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. And I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor Shane Jensen from the Statistics Department and Professor Adi Weiner from the Statistics Department. Every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. Thanks to our associate producer, Danielle Bruno. You can listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and lots of other places. Some combination of the three of us and our co-host, friend, and colleague, Cade Massey, are here every week. And, of course, it's been great. We've been having lots of call-in over the last few weeks. If you want to join the conversation, and there's going to be a lot to talk about today because a lot is going on in sports, you can join in. Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email our producer Matt Datz at businessradio at siriusxm dot com. We get lots of emails throughout the week, and of course, you can follow us on Twitter at at wmoneywall. Good morning, guys. How you doing today? Good morning. Excellent. Lots of great stuff happening. There's lots of great stuff happening. Now, as everyone that listens to Wharton Moneyball knows, the first half hour of our show, we always have what caught our eye in sports, which is a great segment to have. We have, as always, we have a guest at 8.30 today. Matter of fact, Rick Peterson. We're going to talk about baseball. We also have a guest at 9 o'clock. Then we have the last half hour where we do NFL matchups and stuff like that. But since I'm sitting in the seat today and not Cade, I have to take over what caught your eye in sports, especially during our half hour where Adi Weiner is here before he goes to teach this morning. Adi, you and I are going to the Yankee game tonight. We are. Very excited. We're going to the game tonight. Do you know who is starting for the Oakland A's? Um, (laughs) Well, I think it is not a starter. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. So for those listeners here on Wharton Moneyball that haven't been following us throughout the season... Um, about a, it's been for the last, really, since the show started. Adi has talked about the use of non-starters, let's call them relievers, or even, you know, your short relievers, short to, relievers. Start, to start the game. And that is exactly what the Oakland A's are doing tonight. So bef- could you talk to our listeners here on Morton Moneyball why that's potentially a good strategy, and did you ever think it would happen in a win-or-go-home type of game? Okay, so let me just give some terminology and make some clarifications. So, for one thing, what the Oakland A's are doing is what we call a starter. It's called an opener, and then it's followed by what we ordinarily would have thought of as a starter. And then no, the, no, they haven't committed they to that. They actually haven't even committed to that. But let's just make two definitions. So there's an opener, which is the idea here is you begin with a reliever, typically a short reliever, and then you bring in your what you normally would have thought as your starter, and the starter then comes out a little later than the game with the, another short reliever or a closer. Well, let's be clear. The Oakland A's manager has, has not, not even committed to that. committed exactly. that he's going to bring in a so starter. that, just for terminology's purposes, what Oakland might be doing is what we might call a bullpen game. And a bullpen game is something that's a little different from what I've been arguing um, since the, since our show began. <laughs> a bullpen game means essentially just play the game with your bullpen. Go two innings here, three innings here, one inning here until you're finished. Just to be clear to our listeners, what Adi's just laid out are the two scenarios where the Oakland A's manager has explicitly said, I don't know which of the two I'm going to do, but I'm going to do one of those two. Either four or five relievers each, one or two innings each, 
or I'm going to go reliever, right. starter, and then let's you know let's play the game out. Right. So now the bullpen game has actually been around a little bit longer. The, the start, the concept of an opener began this year, and and that's what I've been advocating for for a long time. The bullpen game is you've seen it in the playoffs, and the idea is you just bring in whatever you can, all your resources, all hands you throw on it deck, in, basically, all hands on deck. Is... and you might even use actually your but starters. Explain to, to do this. so. Explain to us. The Oakland A's won. I think it was 97 games this year. I think it was nine. Was it? Not, it was 97. 97. It was a lot. Yeah, it was enormous. I mean, they were terrific. And, and by the way, just for our listeners who are in Wharton yeah. Moneyball, that was the fourth best record right. in their conference this year at 97 I think it was wins. a record. There were three teams over 100 wins. There were wins. three teams over 100 wins. But, nine, I mean, I'm looking at Shane because we're yeah, obviously both huge baseball. 97 wins was the fourth yeah. best record in yeah. the American League this year, which is just amazing. So can we assume that they must have had some decent starting pitching? So this is what I want you to explain to our listeners who are in Wharton Moneyball. They must have had reasonable starting pitching to win 97 games. The manager has a choice between picking one of those starting pitchers or doing the, if you like, the reliever starting. Why would someone do it? You've explained it before, but I just want to hear it again okay, for our so, listeners. So the, the bullpen game strategy is, as what Shane called, all hands on deck. Essentially says this is one game. You want to make every sure your inning is, is used by your best pitchers at any given time. The opener is a little bit different, and that's something that you have to manage for a whole season, and the purpose of that is to get as most wins as possible. And I'm not really sure you would use that as, 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 as naturally as you would during the season. So my idea about the opener had to do with you begin an opener when you're not starting your front-line starter. So it's, the, it's usually your third, fourth, or bottom. And just bottom. to let you know, yeah. thanks to our producer, Matt, that's putting on the screen, although I knew this information for finally, but all the way, Matt, keep it coming. Um, none of this team's five starters to begin the season on the wild card roster. So they've lost, they've had 10 starters go on the disabled list this season, the A's. Five of them lost to Tommy John surgery. So I think what Matt is telling me is the starters for the postseason, they're just not that good. Of, they're not that, not good. that good. And so the basic principle behind the opener is that the first inning is the mo- is where the most damage is done historically. It's the most runs are scored you're in the first inning. You're going up against the best hitters. And you're going the against the best hitters, without a doubt. And especially when the home team has the most advantage. Yeah. That's something that, that, that came out some of analysis recently they do have the home team has the biggest advantage in the first inning compared to the to the visitor and by the way this is just that the fact that you just said besides being a fact it's just an empirical fact that's all i mean is. you just compute the number of you compute home team runs minus away team runs you can do it for nine innings and by the way you can do it, it for every the game home team scores more than the away team in every inning on average but that that the uh the amount is biggest in the first inning so the idea here bring in a terrific re- reliever who you might end up not using i mean that the idea is if you fall behind and and you don't reuse a, a resource i mean we saw what we wish that game that that the uh that the the, the, the best reliever ever was brought in that was a, a disaster. It was in a playoff game. Right. And uh, I, went, I sat think going, it might have been Zach Britton. But I, I mean, think it was Zach Britton. It was like you, you lost the game without using your mm-hmm. best reliever. And so the idea is a run prevented is the same as a run uh, run prevented early is the same as a run prevented late. You, well, you've said that here on Morton Moneyball. They and all that's count the at idea. the end. They all count at the end. And the idea is not to leave a resource unused. Could you also talk about either one of uh, Shane or Adi? Could you also talk about the fact that there's known statistics Matter of fact, a lot of it is in our notes that Matt just produced for us about the batting average going up 
the second or third time you face somebody. So if you start with a reliever, then even if That's the right. starter comes in, they're not going to face the bat, uh, each batter, we hope. They'll, they'll be pulled out before yeah. or, or they would face Or That's when right. they do get to the third, and this is actually best mo- interesting fact, if they do get to the third, it's the bottom of the order that's getting to the third, not the top of the order. So when you get around to the third, it's the weakest part of the order, not the, not the most damaging. Yeah, I was referring to the third time. The third time. Th- so th- th- right, yeah, that's a decade from now, are we going to even be talking about starting pitchers anymore? Um, are we going to be talking about the multi-inning pitcher versus the single-inning pitcher? I think you're probably right. I mean, it's interesting because Cade, Cade forecasted, he asked, I think in an over-under, how long will it be until we have five teams or more using the opener? This is when when mm-hmm. uh, Tampa Bay did it in the, in the early part of the season. And we've already hit five this year. So yeah. I think it was it was much faster than we thought. And I think what Shane is predicting is in the, in the future, we're not even going to have the idea of a starter. You'll just simply have multi-inning and, and, and short-inning type I mean, pitches. yeah, the, the very good pitchers... Are the we'll still have a separation of pitchers quality, and the very good ones are the ones you can you know use for maybe multiple times Mm -hmm. through the rotation. Probably not two, three times through the rotation, but maybe two. So this is Wharton Moneyball. Uh, we're here on Sirius XM Business Radio 132, powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow. I'm here this morning with my co-host Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation, what do you think about the A's not starting a starter or any other topic? You can call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So just to recap, the idea behind an opener is that you try to exploit three weaknesses. One the, is the first inning is the most damaging. Two, it's the resource management. You don't want to leave a good pitcher on the bench. Let them play and, and get their innings up. And third, you want to avoid that third time through the lineup devastation that tends to happen. And, and if it does happen, you want to make sure it's the bottom of the lineup getting there first. Before we move away from tonight's game, although, Adi, you and I, I'm sure, could talk about it forever. And of course, I'll ask Shane in just a second as a Red Sox fan, if you have a preference. <laughs> also, but, but, no, Do no, I have a preference? No, 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 but wait a second. We'll get to you in just a second. Did you like the Yankees' choice of Severino as the starter tonight? As opposed to, you know, possibly Hap was, was as pitching well. Or a bullpen game out of the Yankees. Or a bullpen game out of the Yankees, especially given that is the strength of the Yankees, the Yankees. one could Actually, argue. it's interesting because I was thinking about this because I think Severino has not looked like the Severino with the Last first half. Last two starts he has. He has. But. So the question is, if I'm the Yankee manager, what I would particularly be doing is, is potentially telling Severino, this is not a six-inning game for you. Think about it as a three- or four-inning game and, and try to use some of those advantages that the relievers have knowing that they don't have to pitch as many innings and don't have to uh, husband their resources. They could throw all out and maybe we'll, we'll see better performance out of Severino. I think Severino is the Yankees' best Pitcher. You would have pitched him over Tanaka. That would have been the other logical yeah, option. Yeah, absolutely. Now the real question for the Yankees: Do they use? Do they go to Tanaka in the in, when they pull him out and say the fourth or fifth inning, or do they go to the bullpen? And I think that's because that's the all hands on deck. Well, so moment. my mm-hmm. guess is, let's imagine they win the game. We don't know. It's barely. It's a little more than fifty fifty. My guess is they're saving Hap for Game One against the Red Sox. If I which had, would be Friday night. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm guessing that that will be the one pitcher that will be extraordinarily hesitant to use. Yes, would be Hap. But just just guessing. But let me ask a question. Given the Yankees won a hundred games this year and the A's won ninety seven, let's assume if we looked at a you know, an ELO model of strength, the Yankees and the A's would be very similar to each other. As a matter of fact, they win three and three against each other this year. I don't actually know each of their records against the Red Sox, but let's assume it's not that different. Is it just because it would be Yankees, Red Sox, and anything could happen, or is there any reason you prefer the playing the uh, A's over the Yankees, or just? Yeah, I, I mean, but it's, it's mostly emotional uh, uh, than it is like actually. I think analytical. I don't think there. I don't think analytically there's much advantage to be had with either one of the two teams. 
playing the Red Sox. But emotionally, I just, uh, I mean, I... I, I mean, maybe you guys look forward to these kind of matchups. But they, they I, wrench I, your stomach. It's don't too they? traumatic. I, I do, I I do mean, have to tell you though. Although there was, this, there was, I've had some real trouble, tr- real trauma with some series historically yeah. that really make you ill. Yeah, I don't, I <laughs> don't ahead. need that. And playoff baseball is exhilarating, and and also. Uh, you know, very hard on me. And, oh, and Yankees, I, Red I, I, Sox, I'm rooting for in look, particular. Why do you think uh, Adi and I are going to tonight's game? Tonight might as well be Game Seven. It's yeah. Game Seven. It doesn't. That's right. It's doesn't Game matter. Seven. Yeah. So we have a caller. We have Mike from Ohio. Mike, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Hi, Mike. Eric. How are you? Good. Good. I have a question for you on back to using, you know, pitchers all hands on deck and no more starters as the approach. What would that do for the NL? Would that make them get rid of the DA or start using a DH faster? Well, actually, actually this is Adi. So th- I think it's an interesting question because there's an argument that the the, uh, the DH should come to the NL or something like it. I think in some level it'll 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 actually allow them to manage the D- the the pitching quality, pitching hitter quality a little bit better. I think the pressure on the DH will go away rather than becoming more intense because what'll happen is you'll you'll you can you can essentially sub out the pitcher right away, and so that the the opener won't have to bat, and I think you'll end up cutting the number of at bats by the pitcher down by a factor of two. They typically don't have more than two at bats in a game anyway. I think they'll go down to one, and I think it'll become less of a problem. Just to be clear for our listeners, what Adi's saying is since the starter, who's not a starter, yeah. is not going to get to the let's likely third the, inning, the no pitcher way. doesn't bat until the third inning anyway, you'll have him pulled out. Matter of fact, you'll pull him out exactly in the third inning, sure. which is when you can bring in a batter, and then you sub somebody else in to pitch, and that was your plan anyway. Right. So it, it, it works out perfectly. Matter of fact, it could put less pressure on having does a that, does that So do you think that that Perhaps the lack of a DH in the NL means that you won't have, like we, we talked about, this multi-inning versus single-inning pitcher, which may be the new distinction in the future. Well, does that kind of put a cap on how many innings? Like a, a pitcher would have to be real good for you to pitch them more than I think three it depends innings in on a game. The, I think it depends on the situation in the game. Let, yeah. Let's imagine you're up five nothing. You might leave the pitcher in. Yeah. Uh, let's imagine you've con- you've had eight straight outs, and you know it's two outs. And what are the now you can compute expected runs if you bring in a sub. So now it's not so obvious either way. What I think you could end up seeing happening though, in the NL City in the World Series. Where there is no DH, could you see an American League team use a non-starter to start thinking exactly of this theory? Could you? The question is, you should, that's and that's my, it. That's I my mean, point. That's it, what I was, this yeah. is so a I was huge just deal. taking Mike's point from Mike's, Ohio. Mike's question and first is, of all, is Mike, correct. thank you for calling in. That's, I was taking Mike's point and say, let's forget about next season and the future. Let's talk about in the World right Series. Away. Mike's point should happen yeah. right away. And yeah. in fact, this is a, a this is a torment for for the National League. The pitcher is a, is a, almost a rock solid out, and actually, it's becoming worse of an out. The pitchers historically hit even better than they they used to, and now they're just terrible. I mean, this is I mean, they've always been horrible, but now they're so guys, insanely bad. While we could spend the entire two hours talking baseball, we are going to be talking with Rick Peterson about baseball at the, at eight thirty. So why don't we pivot a little bit to something else that caught my eye in sports? But I'd love to hear your thought. Did either of you watch any of the Ryder Cup? No, I didn't, but I've, I've, I've read a lot about it afterwards. So Okay. I'm, I'm saying no, I did read about it as well. I mean, this was, of course, I've been trying to follow the Tiger Woods story. And this was somewhat of an embarrassment to him, but it turns out. Well, yes and no, and I'll, I'll talk about that. Give us a little bit I of will, insight Yeah, here. I'll give you a little bit of insight there. But just to remind everybody, um, there's 28 points available in the Ryder Cup. The way it works is there are four matches 
on Friday morning, four matches Friday afternoon, same on Saturday. So that's 16 matches. That's 16 points. And then there's 12 singles matches on Sunday for a total of 28. The, uh, the European team ended up with 17.5, the U.S. team 10.5. Now, a couple things about that. That's a, it doesn't sound like it, but that's a massive margin of victory in the Ryder Cup. Matter of fact, I think only two or three times has there been more of a margin of victory than that one. Let's start with that. Secondly, the U.S. team was heavily favored in the Ryder Cup. And the way you could do that is if you just took the nat- the world the rank- rankings. Yeah, I mean, I remember talking about it before the World Ryder Cup, and 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 the, you know most of the concern was whether the Europeans would be competitive. Would even be the competitive in the Ryder Cup? Yeah. And the U.S. got beaten. And not only did the U.S. get beaten, except for the first round, the first Friday morning where the U.S. went three and one, the U.S. then went zero oh and four, I think one and three. One and three, and they got beaten in singles, seven and a half to four and a half, which was the really surprising. Because there you can say, well, you know, let me just, just to Adi's point, um, Tiger Woods played two rounds with Patrick Reed. Now, they don't exactly keep score because you're, you're playing as a team, like you're either playing alternate shot, meaning I hit, you hit, or playing best ball, not best ball. I play the hole, you play the hole, we're a team. Whichever one of us scores better, that's the score on the hole. They estimated that in the first round that um, Patrick Reed played with Tiger Woods, Patrick Reed shot an 85. The second round he played with Tiger Woods, he shot an 83. Oh, my God. So, and I don't know just, that much about, about golf. That's, that's not a good, good number. That's, that's a horrifying number. That's not a good number. Right, right. And so it's not— It's I mean, like a weekend duffer. No, right. am I wrong? So Tiger didn't play— Well, come on now. 85? <laughs> 85 on that course is better, it's better than— better than I've ever uh, shot. Right, okay. but, yeah. but, but either way, um, it's a—let me just say the following. It was— it wasn't good. So my question to you is a couple things. Um, do we look at this and just say the U.S. choked? How would you, how would one statistically look at this in some sort of statistical way to say, let's say the expected score should have been 15 to 13 or 15 and a half to 12 and a half U.S. That's the expected score. We observed a score that was five points different from that. Is there any way you could think about how we could kind of determine how abnormal was this or just, you know, things happen. Well, I mean, uh, the, the, the scoring system is something that is interesting. Uh, we've talked about it in our show earlier. There's Because of the way it works, it, uh, my understanding is is that it, it creates an incentive to be a ri- little risky in your, in your strategy. Oh, absolutely. And I think that maybe is, 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 is a, is a, is a def- difficult thing for the American team, which might have a higher expected value, maybe a smaller variance, which in the long run is a dominant, and that's why you're going to be the leaderboards for the, for the world rankings. But in a, in a format like this, I think it's the you want to trade that expectation in for the higher variance, and that's going to be a, 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 a more likely strategy. So the thing I, that I love, by the way, about the Ryder Cup, which you just picked up, Adi, is let's imagine you're on one team, on another. You scored a four in a hole. doesn't matter whether I score a five or a 17. Four beats five, four beats 17. That's right. So that's why you go for risk. You have to go. In other words, just parring every hole, it doesn't do anything. That's yeah. not going anywhere. And where in a regular tournament... That could That's be, right. especially I mean, on a saw, very difficult right. golf so Ty- course. Tiger Woods was. won his tournament by essentially parring his way to the end. Yeah, he sh- actually after shot he had one it. over. He ended up shooting one over. Because once he birdied the first hole, he goes, I can shoot par in the next 17, and there's That's no right. way these guys are catching That's me. That's probably what makes Tiger Woods, at his height in particular, such a, 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 an incredible golfer, is that he just doesn't, he has no variance, and he just plugs through without any problem. Well, that's why, needs we, that's why we've talked about he's 24 for 24 when leading by three strokes or more going into the final round, and he's 42 of 44 in his career when leading 
or tied for the lead going into the final round. He just, you know, you will not pass him. He will just play as well as he needs to play, and he's got the ability at any time, you know, which, by the way, the part that's impressive to me is I don't understand why all of these pros can't just essentially say, I'm going to play the low-risk strategy, shoot par, and that's why when you gave, I think you gave the stat last week, his odds of winning went up by three strokes is much higher. Much higher than everybody And else. that's the part that yeah. surprises me, because, I mean, can't all of these pros just say, I'm going to play like a robot today, hit the middle of the green, I'm going to hit irons off the off the tee, don't even have to hit driver, iron on the tee, iron on the green, I'll be 30 feet away from every green, I'll two-putt every green, I'll walk out of here with a par, let's see somebody shoot 67, 66. Well, I, I, mean, me. I mean, you, you act like consistency is a choice, right? I, I mean, I, th- I think there's a For physical... Tiger Woods, I think it is. Well, I mean, I yes, think can do but, it. but I think uh, you only have certain very a very small number of right. very elite golfers that can kind of basically project that kind of consistency regardless of of what's happening. Well, I, I think there's a physical and a mental yeah. component to consistency I, I, in golf that I th- I think you know even even within the elite golfers of the world, there's a left tail for that or and a right tail for that. Clearly, the and, data suggests that uh, what Tiger has done. Is essentially never lost when yeah. he's up by three. Never lost, yeah, yeah. and I think the I think the statistic we trotted like out was sixty percent. Sixty percent. Either it's it's closer to a coin toss, which suggests that the Tiger Woods is extraordinarily yeah. rare. Yeah. Um, that kind of ability to just close it out yeah. is an extremely elite. And I mean, I think it's the part of the issue is when Tiger's up ahead like that. It's bec- it's partly because he's, he's just doing well. what he's doing. He's playing right? extraordinarily well. A normal and in a tip a more customary situation where some, you know, Yahoo, whoever he is, is up ahead, it's probably they're playing extraordinary and expect some regression back to the mean. Yeah, he may not even be playing extraordinary. So that was one thing that kind of caught my eye about the Ryder Cup. There's other one other thing about baseball, which I don't I doubt we would talk to about Rick Peterson. I just wanted your thoughts about. So um, there was a player and I just wanted to know, is this would this have been an asterisk situation? And here's what I mean. So uh, Christian Yelich, player for the Brewers. Okay. As you guys know, the Brewers were in a playoff game. They played the Cubs. As a matter of fact, if you want to talk about a high-leverage playoff game, and you guys, I would like you to oh, explain man. to our fans yeah. what it means to be a high-leverage game in a second. They played against the Cubs. By the way, the Cubs are now eliminated, just to show you how high-leverage a game yeah. that was. The Brewers, had they lost, would have been in the wild-card game yesterday. By winning, they're the number one seed Home field in advantage the National League. throughout uh, they went, until the They World didn't Series. go from the wild card to the worst of the division winners. They went from the wild card to the best yep. of the division winners. So besides the Shane Jensen model of one less coin flip, meaning the wild card game, if you believe there's some home advantage in baseball, they're there now is. the number one seed. Yep. So here's my point about Christian Yellis. As you Likely guys may, MVP, by the way. I, but you guys may know, game 163 counts towards the regular season. That's right. Had he hit a home... He didn't. He went three for four with an RBI. But had he hit a home run and gotten two RBIs, he would have won the Triple Crown. Yeah. Now, that would have been in game 163. Is there an asterisk next to it? Should there have been? So let me go to Shane first and then Adi. Just to be clear, (laughs) I want to be clear to our listeners here. Playoff games count towards the regular season. So he he ended up one home run behind, of course, because he didn't hit a home run, and one RBI behind. But had he hit a home run in his last at-bat, he would have won the Triple Crown, and he knew that. In the record book, should that have been an asterisk? Let me go to Shane first. I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's such a small 
amount, and triple crowns are so very rare. The fact None that in it, the National League since 1937, by the yeah, way. Yeah, so I mean, the fact that he happened to take an extra game to do it relative to, you no, know, his content. It, so. Or, or, or <laughs> to not, you know, hypothetically, the fact that he would have had to take an extra game to do it relative to, you know, the last... 70 years of people not doing it. I don't think there, there should be an asterisk. But. Yeah, I agree with, with Shane in this one. I think, I think the way you think about it is those are the rules. Yeah. And those rules have been placed for, for forever. And uh, that's the way it goes. And, and one of the reasons why these things are rare is they're really hard to do. And maybe when someone does it, it's because they had a little bit of these advantages. And we'll just reflect on it and say, well, you know, he did it, but recognize he did it an extra game to do it. And it's not an asterisk, but it's something that we'll talk about. Yeah. But, but just back to Mike from Ohio, maybe National League versus American League. Any reason why it would be 82 years since there's been one in the National League and in the American League? We obviously just recently had, uh, well, well, Cabrera, Miguel did, Cabrera, it. Cabrera, Cabrera did, it. did it. But also, you know, I, I, I can think but of I mean, Miguel you know, Cabrera did it in the 60s. I mean, there have been triple crown winners. I think you're looking yeah, at Mickey Mantle several times. Several times. I, yep. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it, it's a very, very rare thing, and it just, you know... It, it, yeah. it, it happens to have occurred a little bit more often in the American I League. Just, but I, I know I don't read anything into the fact that the National League has somehow, you know, other than I guess you have one less hitter per lineup to do it with. I think one of the things that the, the American League has some advantages when it comes to hitting is that you don't have to worry about the versatility of your hitters in the field. And mm-hmm. that allows yeah, you true. to mobile them out. I mean, think about the Yankees coming to this game. Who's, who is their outfield? Right, they have so many hitters, and it's almost they have some liabilities in the field. I mean, so McCutcheon they picked up is just a terrible fielder, and someone like Stanton is kind of average. And you got to wonder what are they going to do, yeah, and how I, much. I are, mean, and I think that gives you an advantage. There's something to that. I mean, the American yeah. League you have an ability to kind of rest your good rest hitters through <laughs> throughout the season by you know rotating them through the DH slot and stuff like that. So maybe that has enough kind of influence that that's. Affects the rate of 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 a triple crown winner, but a I think it's bit. just random at the end yeah. of the day. Okay, either way, it just <laughs> caught my eye in sports because you know, again, um, it's back to. I just thought it was interesting because you know, I, both of us, Adi, were baseball historians. Yes, does one sixty three count towards the triple my view crown? Is yes, and, and, that's and, the rules. Okay, I'm not convinced about that. But either way, uh, that's well, two votes to one. <laughs> so we have another caller. Uh, Margie from Mississippi. Uh, Margie, uh, welcome to Mo- Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Hey, Eric. Hey, Shane. Hey, Eric. Uh, good to be with you guys this morning. I can't believe you're talking about baseball, and you haven't talked about Rocktober. And <laughs> the postseason started last night, and it was a classic at Wrigley Field that went 13 innings and ended 2-1 to one for the Rockies. And you totally... Um, didn't mention that at the top of the hour when the postseason had already started last night. And and they used six pick pitchers, the Rockies did. They went with their classic opener. But one of the things that was most interesting about the game, there were so many great moments in the game, but they had a double switch in the 12th inning for a reserve catcher who ended up hitting, hitting the uh, winning uh, score in in the 13th. 
I mean, it was a classic. It was a well, classic, yeah, no well, doubt. Well, Margie, th- thanks for your call. And yeah, you're right. We probably should have started with the Rockies, and, Rock, Rockies and Cubs. And just to correction, one thing, Margie, first of all, thanks for your call. Just one correction. Um, the Rockies actually did start Kyle Freeland last night, who, by the way, pitched beautifully. Matter of fact, he went, I, I watched the first seven innings of the game, and I'm pretty sure he pitched at least those first seven innings. And he didn't give up a run, at least in the six or seven. I think the uh, Cubs scored in the eighth inning. So their starter did not give up a run. But regardless, um, look, the thing I thought about when I was watching that Rockies-Cubs game, and then you know, I have to admit I didn't stay up for all of it, but when I saw that the uh, Rockies had won in the 13th inning, I started to think about what's baseball thinking now, and here's what I mean. So you and I are going to the A's-Yankees game tonight. Let's imagine the Yankees lose this game. So you've got two of the biggest markets in the U.S. Let's imagine the Cubs and Yankees are out of the out of the playoffs. I was pure. We're a business school. Yeah. I was also thinking of it from a business point of view. What is the network going to be thinking? Because they've got to be hoping. Please, Yankee Red Sox. Please. Good oh for ratings. God, yes. Good for ratings. A's Red Sox. Not so good you know, for not ratings. Not as good too for small ratings. Markets. Too, too smaller markets. And also there'll be West Coast time zone, East Coast time zone. So even probably as many Red Sox fans wouldn't well, watch games out in Oakland. What if it turns into Oakland, Milwaukee? Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, oh, well, my God. Who, who did Kansas City play in the World Series a few years ago? I think that was the ratings. That was low. the ratings. That was the ratings. Low. So first of all, Margie, thanks for the call. It's great. You're right. In due respect, we are definitely we northeast have, focused. We, we, not just that, we have two diehard Yankee fans and a diehard Red Sox fan in this booth right here. So we may not, but yes, we definitely recognize that the playoffs started last night. It also shows you that it's a coin flip, which is why I go back to what we talked about: the Brewers winning that game. Not don't forget to give them number one seed. Shane, you would agree. The bigger thing is, it's one less game. Forget yep. number one seed. They didn't have to play a 50-50 game. Yeah, right. No, that's well, right. Although, one of the things that was very interesting about the game last night that has nothing to do with what happened on the field, but really what happened in the broadcast booth. So ESPN typically has uh, A-Rod and Mendoza in the, in the booth and doing conventional, traditional baseball um, broadcasting. There was a alternate broadcast last night for the first time, the StatCast broadcast with Brian Kenny and a couple of the Stat, uh, StatCast team from MLB. And what they essentially did was they're gonna, they gave their version of what they, of a broadcast should be like with heavy on statistical analysis. And all reports were wonderful. I watched part of the, the StatCast what, broadcast What myself. I thought was wonderful about it was... Um, the this has shocked me actually when I turned it on last night. You know, cause, you know, I'm, you know I hit my guy just to check. I was like, so oh, game's on ESPN. The Statcast ones on ESPN two. Yeah. I thought it would be like streamed on ESPN three or no. be in an ESPN plus or you know I hate to say it maybe they would have buried it on the American Movie Classics channel or something like that. It was right next to it. Yep. on ESPN two. It made me feel good about myself just a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, I, I I think it helps that we're sort of at 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 a, at a point in 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 the calendar where baseball completely dominates, so ESPN can focus both of their kind of flagship channels on the same game, basically. Uh, but no, I think it's wonderful, and I I hope they continue to experiment with this type of stuff because I think, um, you know, obviously we and and any listeners of our, of our radio show are already fans of a more analytical kind of perspective on sporting events, but I think what ESPN is gauging right now is just how sort of massive that movement is. How is, is the general public kind of interested and in, would they be compelled by a more analytical perspective on sporting events? And I think sort of, the, the, I, I hope that last night's, in a, 
you know, in a rating sense, was successful, and they'll continue to do this well, type of I, experimentation. I, I want to build on what you said, Shane, just in the last minute we have before we take our break. Um, I'm very interested to find out, and I'd just like your opinions in 30 seconds each. Did the stat cast, and this is your point about business, from a business point of view, again, we're uh-huh. Wharton School, we're business, do you think it cannibalized ESPN, or is the total sum greater? And let me be clear to our listeners what I mean. Let's imagine it, last night's Cubs-Brewers game was going to get a 10% rating share. The question is, by adding ESPN2 and the StatCast version, did they exceed 10%, meaning it, the total sum of the pie was greater, but maybe 9% on ESPN and 2% on ESPN2, or do you think it was 9%, 1%? Do you think there's people that are StatCast fans nowadays that just aren't... I mean, it's not, it made them watch baseball. Adi, what do you let me, think? Let me just... Thinking for purely for myself, um, I love to watch baseball of any kind, but when it is intellectually constructed and deconstructed, it's far more fascinating. Mm-hmm. So Agreed. I'm much more likely to watch a game con- involving two teams. how many do you think there are I, on I this I think planet? there are plenty. Well, I mean, not not exactly none, but but I think there are many people who are interested in, in seeing a much more uh, rich uh, statistical discussion of the game. And I think that the sum is going to be greater and than Shane, the individual. And Shane, what do you think? I, I, I agree with Audie. I mean, I, again, my, obviously, I think from my own perspective, it's probably biased like Audie's <laughs> is, but um, I think my... my Onus or, or or kind of tendency to watch a game and to stick with a game and you know through the entirety because baseball is a long game. Um, the ability to kind of have that like you know extra intellectualism or something like that or analytical perspective will will compel me to stick with a game longer than it otherwise would. And also you have to think about it; it's not so heavy. We're talking about lists of the hardest hit balls and contact rates and distance traveled in the outfield. It's mm-hmm. it's great set of it is an alternate set of counting stats, and they're fascinating and they're fun. But it's not like they're deconstructing WRC plus on, on well, radio. Well, ho- hopefully that'll start happening soon too. So this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Um, uh, we have a great three quarters to go. Please join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen, professor of statistics. Unfortunately, Adi Weiner had to go do the day job and actually start teaching this morning, and of course, our primary host, Cade Massey, is not here this morning. We welcome, we wish Cade all the best in everything he's doing. I think he's out in San Francisco. But, of course, some combination of the four of us are here every week live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. And, of course, just like Mike did from Ohio and Margie from Mississippi, you too can join the show. It's very simple to do. All you have to do is call 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And you can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And I'm going to be doing a lot of tweeting. I'll be heading up to New York for the Yankee game. I'll be tweeting along the way at at WMoneyBall. So it's amazing. You know what time it is, Shane? It's time for that call to the bullpen. Here comes the skipper on his way to the mound. That's going to be all for his starter this afternoon. Einstein said it best. It's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. On the 0-1 count, Chipper Jones hit 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data. Warden Moneyball's call to the bullpen with Rick Peterson. So, Rick... Peterson is former Major League Pitching Coach for the Mets, A's, Brewers, and Orioles. 
He's now a sought-after motivational speaker, co-author of Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. For anybody that's listened to Wharton Moneyball uh, throughout the last four years, Rick Peterson is our most frequent guest on Wharton Moneyball. So, Rick, welcome back to the show. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with Shane Jensen. Hey, all right, guys. This is like pennant fever at, the, at its best. We're definitely, definitely, definitely... It's, it's been a treat. We've gotten, like, th- what I kind of regard as three extra playoff games, you know, this year. It's been pretty wonderful. Yeah, so, Rick... It's really, Rick, really amazing when you think about the fact that you had, after 162 games, you got four teams all locked up. Absolutely. Um, so, Rick, um, I wanted to start... Let's start from the beginning. Let's start from... I want to start getting your perception of the regular season. Then I want to move on to the one-and-done playoff games we have, including the one tonight, which is probably no surprise to you. You know Adi and I are both Yankee fans. We'll obviously be at the game tonight. But let's start with the re- – and then, of course, I want to talk about the playoffs going forward. But let's talk about the regular season. So let's imagine after the regular season there's the teams that made the playoffs. And in baseball, it's actually serious. There are not that many – it's not like hockey or basketball where, oh, everybody makes the playoffs, essentially. In baseball, it's just a few. Can you talk about the mentality of a team that makes the playoffs versus doesn't make the playoffs? Because you've been on both sides. You've been at the top of the pinnacle, and you've been on some teams that haven't done as well. Tell us how the coaching staff and everybody thinks about the season and how to build towards the following season, depending on which group you're in. Well, first of all, when when you show up to spring training, the very bottom line message, and this was always the message to our pitching staff, this is the first day for the hunt for October. The only reason that we show up for spring training is to make sure that we put ourselves in position that we play in October. And because uh, when you play this marathon and you watch that game last night, which was a marathon in itself, and you're realizing that, God, after all this that you went through since February 15th and you're grinding every single day, what what, what was it that I think I, I heard it was one of the teams that played – 47 out of 49 days games that in any other business people you can't even comprehend what that means and and that's like you know that's like you look at like for example like Milwaukee and they they played their 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 game at the last day of the season to find out if they're going to be tied with Chicago or not so they play a one o'clock in the afternoon game they finish up their game they're sitting in the clubhouse watching watching the cub game find out if, if they're going to play the Cubs or they won the division, the Cubs win, and everybody goes like, wow, that is so cool. And like the average fan's like, wow, that is so cool. One, one game playoff tomorrow for the, for the division, you know, games at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, think about Milwaukee. M- Milwaukee, they finish up their game. They're sitting in their clubhouse waiting to see what happens. Now, now the Cubs win. By the time they get on the bus, it's about 8 o'clock at night. They pack up everything. They go to Chicago for a one-game playoff. They they check into the hotel probably around midnight. Get in, you know by the time you get into your hotel and get your bag unpacked, and you know for the coaching staff, you know for example they're at the ballpark at eight thirty nine o'clock that morning, you know and here we go for one game at one o'clock in the afternoon to see where you go, you know and to see if you can like take the next step and and then now which they now have a five game playoff, you know so the, the the trauma and the marathon of going through that and and the you know, the hope and desperation, you know, to make this. And when you don't, you know, like the Cubs right now, as great a season as the Cubs had, one in 95 games, I believe it was, they are absolutely miserable. You know, and they, they made the comment before the game, I think it was Rizzo saying, hey, listen, you know, it's a one game, you know, you just play it as a normal game, 
you know, you can say all you want about right. it. Right, it's not a normal yeah, game. I, I, I can't so believe like, oh, that. We'll be, we'll be doing barbecuing this weekend if we don't make it. Well, enjoy your barbecue this weekend. We'll see how much so, time you So, have. Rick, let me ask you also to reflect on the regular season. We talked about this a little bit. If you do, if you consider that Brewers beat the Cubs in the playoffs game, so let's put the Brewers, obviously they both ended up with 95 wins. Did you think you would ever see a regular season where, let's call the Cubs then the sixth best team in baseball, would win 95 games. 95 games was the sixth best team in baseball because the Yankees, sorry, I should start with, let me be respectful, the Red Sox, the the Yankees, sorry, the Red Sox, the Astros, the Yankees, the A's, the Brewers, all won 95-plus games. Did you ever think you would see a time in baseball where where 95 games gets you in sixth place? No, I mean, I mean, I mean that that's what you're talking about, and I, and I think it's just it, it's top heavy and bottom heavy right now. Yeah, I was going to say, do you sort of see this as kind of an era of unprecedented sort of, I guess, disparity um, in baseball? It, it is right now because the teams that the, the teams that realize that that when they show up in spring before they go to spring training, they know for there's no hope to forget. Don't even buy a lottery ticket for October. We got no shot at this whatsoever. And then you have teams that think they have a shot at it, like going back to the Orioles in spring training. The Orioles thought, like, you know, when they left spring training, they said, you know, we, we can compete for a while. Well, I wanted to spe- obviously you spent a lot of time with the Orioles, so I wanted to talk to you specifically about the Orioles because they're at the other end of the spectrum. I actually right. did a little bit of analysis. Besides, it doesn't take any analysis to know they went 47 and 115. But in the last 60 years, 60 they have the second worst record in baseball mm-hmm. over the last 60 years. And so, or since the 62 Mets, since, since mm-hmm. the Mets started, uh, the 2003 I guess that, Tigers the, 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 the went Detroit, 43. I remember that team. They went 43 yep. and 119. How do you go into 2019 if you're the Orioles and you won 47 games? Like, do you have, a, like, do you set mini goals? Do you say to yourself, look, Let's just try to get be a 500 team this year. I mean, what do you do? And also, let's talk about it since you were obviously a pitching coach. How do you get the pitching staff ready? Do you try to build it one brick at a time? How do you think about that? Well, that's what I went through in Oakland before we hit the Moneyball era, which was a you know a real romantic famed era of, of baseball. I mean, you talk about the teams winning. You know, I, I can remember my first spring training. In, in with Oakland as a as a big league pitching coach, I remember Art Howe, you know, giving his State of the Union address to the team when they, when when all the players got in. That was day five of spring training when the players joined the pitchers because the pitchers are there four or five days before the players show up. And his State of the Union address was, "Hey, listen, if anybody in this room isn't here to be a 500 team, you know, to at least be for the or to, to, to our goal is 500, then walk out the door." And I'm thinking like. Because I, I had come from organizations that, you know, we're playing in October, and we're counting on it. And I'm, I was ready to walk out the door. I'm going, that's all we're trying to do here, just to get to 500? You know, but I realized that that was the first step, the first realistic step. And, 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 and then I think back on, you know, looking at, like, what the Yankees, everybody's going, the Yankees won 100 games. We won, 100, we won 102 with the lowest payroll and lost Giambi, Johnny Damon, and Billy Koch. And had to replace him with no money, and then we won 103 games back to back years. You know, I mean, so when you look at that, and when we won, we won, I think, 103. I want to say that the Angels that year won the World Series. I want to say they won 98, and I want to say the Seattle won 95 or 6. That was three teams in the same division, winning 103, 98, and 95 or 6 or something like that. It was crazy. And we played each other 19 times. 
You know, so when you look at that kind of disparity... Yeah, by the way, Matt's putting up... Our producer, Matt Datz, is putting up on my screen. Here's the progress. This is progression. This is what you have to open for the Orioles. The A's had 65 wins in 97, 87 wins in 99, 91 wins in 2000, 102 wins in 2001. So we can all see they kind of built to 500, above 500, and then championship level. I wanted to ask you something else. I wanted to ask you something else about the uh, about the season, about actually tonight's game. We spent about 15 minutes talking about this at the start of the show. Are you a fan of what the A's are doing tonight? So as you may have said, the Yankees are starting Severino. Let's call them their best pitcher, Severino, Tanaka. They're starting Severino. The A's, as you may know, are not starting a starter. They're actually starting their reliever tonight. We've talked about this on Morton Moneyball many times. You've even talked about the fact that um, a pitcher facing batters for the second and third time, batting averages go way up. Do you, from an analytics point of view, from a pitching coach point of view, agree with the A's strategy of starting with a reliever tonight? Yes, because of their situation. They, they, don't, have, they don't have a Severino, a Hap, a Tanaka you know, as, as a choice. So if you don't have that choice, you're, you're looking at this saying, okay, it's that war of attrition. You know, if, it, if we play a regular game, nine innings, we got 27 outs. Here's the guys that we got that, 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 that we have that can get us 27 outs. And this whole notion of bullpenning, which I think is really, really fascinating when you don't have a quality starter. I mean, back during, you know, the years that I was there with the A's, you know, we had Mulder, Hudson, Zito. I mean, That's so not too bad. I, I, I yeah. you know, I'm sure right, the A's right. right now wish, though, as, you know, as the old They would take Celtics, one of those guys. As the Celtics used to say, you know, Larry Bird, uh, Kevin McHale, and Robert Parrish are not coming through that door. Nor Mulder, Zito, and those guys aren't coming through the door for the A's. Right. I mean, so, so but, but here's the flip side of that coin is the fact that if you're going to use, like, say, six, seven pitchers, eight pitchers, whatever, to, to, to get that 27 outs. The danger is is the fact that as opposed to, let's say, Severino goes out, and let's say he has a solid A-minus, B-plus game, you know, for example. Like, he's pitching a solid game like Lester did last night, you know, and, and you know, when you watch that game last night, you know, they're, they're all ready to go to their bullpen as soon as possible. The Rockies much much more, you know, much more willing to do it than, than the Cubs because they've had some bullpen issues. You know, but the fact that these guys are dominating the game, it's like there's no reason to take them out at this particular time proactively because we don't have a great choice. But if you have to pitch seven guys, for example, like the A's might have to do tonight, the chance of all seven guys having an A-plus, A or A-minus, B-plus game you know, becomes more risky. I mean, That's it, a great it, point. You need to kind of, in some sense, any one of those weak links has a bad game, or short links has a bad game, then you're in trouble. Just we're talking to uh, we're talking to Rick Peterson, former major league pitching coach for the Mets, A's, Brewers, and Orioles. We're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Brado. I'm here with Shane Jensen this morning. If you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Rick, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Rick, so you, I mean, I, I think I completely agree with you that you know part of the motivation for Oakland taking this kind of opener strategy opening a relief pitcher strategy is that they don't really have that kind of shut down frontline starter um but say take the Yankees for example going into this game they Mm -hmm. do have those frontline starters but I think we can both agree that even though they do have those frontline starters their actual best pitchers are potentially in their bullpen as well so what 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 would you say to the yeah like do you do you really think it's obvious that the Yankees should start with one of their starters as opposed to say taking one of their relievers uh, in the first inning of the game? 
Absolutely, because they they have the option of one of these guys like spinning one up. I mean, you take Severino, you know, pre All Star game. I mean, are, are you kidding me? I mean, I mean, he's liable to take you through seven innings, you know, and and dominate a game. And if you score some runs, I mean, don't, don't, here's the other big factor, and, and you have two sides of this coin because I know you guys are big Yankee fans. Well, so one of think, us is Shane's okay. a big Red Sox right. fan, and we're going to get to the Red Sox in just a second. I'm the okay. big Yankee fan. All right, so so for example, Hap is really probably their best choice for tonight. But but my 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 guess internally, when they sat down with with all their front office and the manager and the coaching staff, and said, okay, what are we really trying to do here? Is is it imperative that we play that we get to the next round? Is that what we're playing for, or are we actually playing for a World Series? This is a great point. I really continue on, Rick, because we talk about expectations, loss functions. You're talking about, just for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, what Rick is talking about is one choice, Hap, might maximize the probability of winning this game, but he doesn't maximize the probability of winning the World Series, and the Yankees no don't put up banners for winning wild card games. So please keep going. Exactly. So so Hap is really their best choice. He matches up best against his club, and he's pitching best the whole deal. But he matches up best against against Boston. So if you pitched Hap tonight and he pitched five or six or seven innings, you're probably only getting one start out of Happ in the next round. So do you really want to line yourself up to give yourself a chance to, to go to the World Series, or, or do you want to just get to this one game? Realistically, and the other thing that the A's are, are really, you know, can be good at, and we felt this way when, when I was with the A's because they are the lowest payroll in the game, they've set themselves up to be a true underdog. And there's nothing like going into Yankee Stadium. And, I, and we were that way with, and I've told this story on the show before, but I'll tell it again. Well, we would go in, you know, after, after we lost Giambi and Johnny Damon and, and Billy Koch, we would go in to play the Yankees. And, and, and Tim Hudson, you know, was, he was our team leader. So he'd get everybody together before the game started. He goes, come on, let's go, guys. We've got to go out there and kick their butts. Let's go. They, they got Giambi. We got Hatterberg. They got Soriano. We got Menachino. They got Jeter. You know, he'd go right down the lineup. <laughs> and it was like, you know, it was David going out to, to fight Goliath without question. I think, that's, I, I think that's a great motivator. Well, let's go to the phone lines for questions. We have Dan in Atlanta. Dan, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow here with Shane Jensen. Of course, we have our guest, Rick Peterson. So uh, how can we help this morning? Hey, how you doing? I got a question and a comment. question is, how's, what's Rick's feeling on this whole the pitchers only going five, six innings, you know, and they're not really getting stretched out for their pitch counts. And then my comment is, I, I'm, I'm a Yankees fan, and I really don't like that. I know half of them pitching better, but the A's lineup, other than Lowry and Olsen, are kind of loaded right-handers. Well, so, Rick, what do you think about that? What do you well, think about both the pitchers? But you're also, you, you also have some reverse splits. You know, where where left-handed pitcher does better against a lot of right-handed hitters as well. You know, but when you look at Hap's game in Yankee Stadium with the short porch, and you, and if you look at, for example, you know Chris Davis's spray chart as a hitter, if you and you look at his home runs, if you if you just looked at the spray chart of where the home runs go, you don't know if he's a left or right-handed hitter. You know, so that short porch out there, a left-hand pitcher really negates that. You know, for a right-handed hitter because of the way that he can he can pitch to him. You know, but to that point about you know stretching pitchers out, it, it comes down again. Let me get into the five-game series. You, you have to obviously a, a one game. You're looking at 27 outs. When you when you're managing your your pitching staff coming into a five-game series the next round, 
you're you're looking at 45 innings. How, how 45 innings plus or minus, depending if you're home, road, uh, uh, extra innings, so on down the line. How can I maximize? And you lay out your pitching staff, and you look at the other team that you're facing, and you look at runs in their lineup, you know, spaces in their lineup. Where okay, I can bring this guy in. He can go through these four guys very comfortably. Maybe this guy's not so good. It's not a good matchup for us. But if he gets by them, he's got another three guys he can go through. So I, I can run another seven. That's that's seven outs I can possibly get in that in that run right there. So Rick, just a quick question. And just by the way, we only have two minutes left, so I have a quick question, and then I want to get your take on the whole playoffs. You're saying there's no chance the Yankees haven't mapped out both tonight's game and the five-game series potentially with the Red Sox. There's no chance that they haven't mapped this out. That would be, from my past experience, that would be the case, yes. Okay, so in the last two minutes, what's your take on the playoffs? Does anybody have a chance to beat, is it the Red Sox or the Astros and the rest of the field, any chance, or is it really just a coin flip? What are your thoughts? Yeah, all, all four teams, all four teams are, are are right there without question. I mean, there's there's not there's not there's some big edges when you really look at the rosters, but when you come down to playing the games and you're covering those forty five those forty five innings in the five game series, and then you know obviously you know the seven game series changes. You know, you add another eighteen innings to that. You know, but when you look at it, if you put the Kansas City Royals in there, they, they could maybe squeak it out. You know, I mean, that's how fragile. That's how fragile when you take a look at, you know, you take a look at these series and how fragile they and are. And what about what about the NL? What are your thoughts on the NL? Who do you have? Who do you have as the favorites in the NL, or is it really just a coin flip between the teams left as well? Is there any team you particularly like? I mean, they're all kind. They're all kind, They're all coin, coin flips. But I, I like Milwaukee coming into this, and, and I like Houston coming into this, and I like it because mainly because of the fact of um, Milwaukee is is when you come in hot like the, like they are right now, and they're battle tested, and and they feel like they're invincible. That that's a dangerous. That's a very dangerous team coming in, and if they can if they can keep that momentum going. Now, if it, now it gets negated, and this is when you talk about momentum in a postseason, and, and this is where bullpenning really has a disadvantage as opposed to teams who have quality starters like, you know, like Verlander, Cole, and, and, and Keuchel for Houston, is the fact that momentum in the playoffs is all based on tomorrow's starting pitcher. Yep, you've yeah. said that. You've definitely said that a number Everybody. of times here Everybody. on Wharton Moneyball. Well, we have to run, Rick. But first of all, we've been talking to Rick Peterson, former Major League pitching coach for the Mets, A's, Brewers, and Orioles. He's a softer, motivational speaker and co-author of Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. Rick, thanks for your thoughts today. And, of course, we'll be con- connecting with you throughout the playoffs here on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for your time this morning. My pleasure, guys. Always a pleasure. Enjoy. We will. So thanks. And so this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We have half to go. And it's hard to believe, Shane, but you know what? Hockey season's on us. And so we have, oh, yeah. we're going to talk hockey in the next half hour. And then we'll be talking NFL in the last half hour. So it's been half the show. Please join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Adi Weiner is off teaching, and Kate Massey is off, I think, in San Francisco doing all kinds of interesting stuff. But some combination of the four of us are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. 
And, of course, this is a call-in show, which we've had lots of great callers this morning. Let's continue the momentum. If you want to be part of the show, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We had our, we've already had, Shane, our first half-hour segment. We had our What Caught Our Eye in Sports. We obviously just had Rick Peterson and our Call to the Bullpen segment in our last half-hour. But as we talked about at the end of the last half hour, there's another season that's starting today. As the Major League Baseball enters the playoffs, the NHL enters the regular season. So we actually are lucky to have a guest, Dom Luschichin, uh this morning here. Uh, Dom is an NHL, NHL reporter for The Athletic who writes about hockey analytics and new ways of looking at the game. He's also worked at the Hockey News, the Nation Network, and Hockey Graphs. I, Dom, um, if I, sorry if I butchered your last name there, but I did my best, but welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Uh, you did pretty good. Uh, usually most people do much worse. <laughs> ah, there, there we are. So, uh, Don, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host Shane Jensen, who, by the way, is a Canadian, so he uh, knows quite a bit about hockey. Um, but can you talk to us about, we ask this pretty much of every time a first guest is on our show, how did you get into hockey analytics? I mean, you know, how did you get into analytics more generally and specifically hockey analytics? Uh, I've always had an interest in numbers and I think uh, around five years ago um, the Leafs, because I'm from Toronto and obviously watched the Leafs most of my life and they looked like they were doing really good by the standings but every time you watch them they looked like garbage and I was always just wondering why there was such a disconnect and I was on Twitter and people started talking more about basic analytic things like Corsi and PDO at the time and it just started like it just clicked and it made sense so ever since then I've had a a passing interest in analytics I guess. Do you have an undergraduate background in you know it, you know we always ask people do you have a background in math or statistics or economics or computer science like what's your background or are you do, are you just someone that you know is taking your skill set and applying it to analytics? My undergraduate background is actually in journalism, so no math whatsoever. Basically, everything I know I taught myself because in high school I was always pretty good at math, and I ventured off into writing because I wanted to do something with hockey because it's always been my passion, and then this whole analytics thing sort of blew up, and I felt it could be a niche I could uh, get myself into. Since many of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball are less familiar with hockey analytics as opposed to, let's say, NBA or MLB or NFL, could you talk to us, maybe if you had to say the top three metrics or analytics that are beyond just goals scored or assists, which are, of course, the standard thing, every, or plus minus on the ice, you know, those are, I'll call them the old-time analytics. Could you tell us the major metrics or analytics that exist in hockey and what they are? Uh, I'll just go with the basics, which are um, probably on ice metrics at five and five. So things like Corsi, which is just shot attempt ratio, and you can go even further with uh, expected goals, which if you follow soccer, it's basically the same thing. It's just shot ratio, but you take quality into account for each shot. Um, shooting percentage usually regresses um, heavily for hockey, so that's also something important to look at. And um, there's a little, there's a, been a lot of work lately with war stats in hockey, and that's uh, something to look at as well. 
where I think there's a, a couple of stats, one by Emmanuel Perry, one by uh, a couple of twins who go by Evolving Wild on Twitter, and they've been doing the work to uh, get a better overall look at a player's value. Could you? So a lot of the metrics you just talked about are at the individual player level. Um, um, so could you talk to us about both, I'll call it the state of the art of, let's call it player level analytics in hockey versus maybe let's call it team level analytics in hockey. Like is the whole greater than the sum of its parts? How do you construct an optimal team? Or do you think that most of the work in analytics is still sitting at the individual player level? How do you think about that? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Like the the first few stats I mentioned definitely apply at team level as well. But uh, it's a bit hard to structure, I guess, the best team because we're still so early into the process for war stuff, especially when it comes to adoption. But basically, you're just trying to get as many chances to score as possible because hockey is such a low scoring league and you do that by getting as many chances, getting as many good chances. So that's usually what you look at, and you look at players who influence shot rates as best as they can. You try to apply contact to that, like who do they face, who do they play with, what zone do they start in, et cetera. Adama, this is Shane. I, I Can you kind of speak a little bit to sort of the balance or, or – or... How much of the focus in hockey analytics right now is kind of on retrospective analysis? Most of what you've described, and I think that you know it, it makes sense, is a, is about coming up with better ways of kind of describing or quantifying what had actually happened in games. But obviously, as as you're designing a team or or or, or looking for future success, you're trying to. Pre- predict into the future, say through the draft or, or, or through acquisition of player personnel. How much do you think teams are kind of focused on this retrospective analysis versus prospective analysis? Uh, it really depends on what you're looking for because a lot of that retrospective analysis will apply to the future. Uh, what you, for hockey, a lot of what happens in the future, probably in a lot of sports, is what they've already shown in the past. And with all these stats, you want to know which ones can, I guess... Are the most consistent or something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you'd look at things like war, or you can make projection models based on these kinds of stats or a combination of all things we find important and sort of get a guess of who, which players will be good going forward you apply age curves regression all that which is something i've done for the athletic for uh my season preview series well could you talk about let's just uh so dom could you talk about let's start with one of these could you talk about age curves so for example we've talked about age curves in other sports what do age curves look like in hockey um in some sense what is the peak age and when do we expect you know the cliff to happen if you'd like in hockey what do age curves look like in hockey a lot of people in the past have thought that players peak around 27 to 29 because I think that's how it is in some other sports, and that's when coaches usually trust their players the most. And I think research around a decade ago suggested suggested it was a lot closer to 24 to 26, and by the time you're 30, the age curve is already on its way down. Wow. And and do you think that that is something that has actually evolved over time? I mean, certainly 
and this is, you know, anecdote, there's a lot of bias to my memory, but, you know, I watched hockey a lot back in the 80s, early 90s, and it did seem like, you know, it was there were older players playing. Um, a lot of players were playing were still very effective into their into their mid thirties. Do you think that that this is something? Is that just a bias to my memory, or do you think that actually things have changed over time and somehow younger players are are are, are more advantageous in this you know more recent generations? I'm not too sure, but I remember I did a piece for the Hockey News a couple of years ago, and I remember looking at the ages of all the top scorers because it looks like when Austin Matthews and Patrick Liner were blowing up in the league, it was just like a youth revolution where all the best scorers were these guys who were like 20s who were younger. And I looked at it for the 80s, and it was even more significant then. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So what do you what are you most excited about about what's going on in hockey analytics today? And let me let me just break it down. Is it that people are coming up with new ways to measure what success looks like or are you more excited about the new kinds of data that are emerging or is it both? I would say the new kind of data like right now the NHL doesn't really have tracking data aside from a few private companies who do it and a few crazy individuals who track it themselves. And just looking at what they're coming up with is really exciting. And I know that that tracking data is on the horizon. will probably be difficult to handle for most people, especially me who doesn't have a computer science background. But I think that's the most exciting part because there's a lot of there's, – there's not that much left to do with the current data that is at hand, and it just feels – like a lot of the the same things happening right now without getting that better data. And Dom, looking sort of ahead to the upcoming season, what what do you sort of see as the most kind of what 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 are teams that stand out as kind of the most compelling ones to follow? I mean, an obvious one that came to my mind as I was thinking ahead to the upcoming season is Vegas, the Vegas Golden Knights, and whether they will replicate the kind of success they had last year, whether that was just kind of a random one-off sort of magical season. Specifically, what do you think about Vegas, and are there other teams that have kind of caught your eye going forward? Yeah, the thing with predicting what happens in hockey is it's not like other sports. Like in basketball, if you think a team's going to get 55 wins, they'll probably get between 53 and 57 or something like that. In hockey, if you think a team will get 90 points they can get anywhere between 70 and 110 reasonably because like the standard deviation is around eight to ten points for how close you can be and it's just and it's how you get stories like vegas where everyone thought they'd be bad and they turned out to be one of the best teams in the league and it seems like that's the case every year where one team that is expected to be in the bottom five somehow surprises and just looks a lot better than expected but and then the year after, they regress as expected. With Vegas, it's a little different because not only was it that once-in-a-blue-moon type thing where a bad team or a team everyone expected to be bad wasn't bad, but for them, they didn't even look bad. They actually looked good. So it was a, it was a sort of thing where a lot of people, both in analytics and in, I guess, scouting circles, whatever, got this team extremely wrong and it had a lot to do with giving players who never got an opportunity a better one. 
So we're here on Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow uh, hosting this morning with my co-host Shane Jensen. We're talking to Dom Luschichin. Dom is a national NHL reporter for The Athletic who writes primarily about hockey analytics and new ways of looking at the game. If you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Dom, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Dom, could you talk to us about a recent piece you wrote about, about NHL season previews and even just the topic you were just talking about, uncertainty. Why, for example, is there so much uncertainty in hockey? Like, why are other sports, as you said, you know, 90, you know, in baseball, you know, you could say, well, it's going to be 80 wins, plus or minus three or four. Why do you think hockey has so much uncertainty? And can you tell us about your piece? I think it's mostly just that it's such a low-scoring environment for teams. And if you have only five and a half, six goals per game happening. It's just difficult to predict how those goals are going to bounce in each team's way. And you can have a good idea of which teams are the best, but things are going to change. And the other thing is that the teams are so close together in talent that it's hard to discern between them. Like there's a lot of teams that look like they can be competitive this year. Like I have, I went through each team one per day of how good they can be. And I had, uh, let's see, about like half the league between 95 and 85 points, which is probably right around average in a 10-point gap. So it's just crazy that like all these teams are so close together. You don't really know what's going to happen between them this season. And the fact that hockey is such a random sport makes it even more difficult. Well, let me ask you a question. This is kind of true of any measuring instrument since, you know, we're a statistics show. Um, Mm -hmm. The top of the distribution, you can usually predict fairly well. The bottom of the distribution, fairly well. The middle of the distribution, as you said, much harder to know exactly what's going to happen. If you had to say who are the likely three to four teams, you're fairly certain they're going to be there at the end. If you had to list the three or four teams, you're fairly certain are not going to be there at the end. Who would those be in the upcoming NHL season? Uh, the top teams, I would have to say, are probably Nashville, Tampa Bay, Toronto, and Winnipeg. And it'd probably be... It Did you list the Capitals or Vegas? Did I miss it? Uh, no, I, honestly, I am not high on either team because I think Vegas, I still think they're a good team, but Vegas, they are probably due to regress this season and won't be as strong as they were last year. And the Capitals... Um, last year they won the Cup, but it was probably their weakest team in a decade, and they have a very aging core, so I'm not sure they can repeat that success, and I wouldn't be as confident with them. The thing with uh, the playoffs is hockey's already random enough, and the playoffs just put that on his head, and you get two Stanley Cup finalists who most would have argued didn't look that strong to start the playoffs, and then they happened to get the Stanley Cup Finals, and obviously it was deserved, but if you're, I don't think it's right to base the next season, like base your opinion on each team based on the playoffs towards next season. So also, um, so how about the bottom four? How do you see that going? Like which teams do you know, do you not see going as well this year? Uh, I think the bottom four is really easy. It's Ottawa in a landslide, especially after they traded Eric Carlson, and then Detroit and Vancouver don't look particularly strong, and neither do the New York Rangers. And I think those are the only four teams that I have personally projected for under 80 points. 
And literally any team after that, I feel, has at least some chance. Like there are teams like the Islanders or the Canadians or the Sabres who, whose chances are a bit lower, but they, they still have some chance. Like it's at least above 10%. And what about just? I have to ask because we're sitting here in the city of brotherly love, the home of the Philadelphia Flyers. What are their projections for the season, and how do you see their, it going for them? I actually have them in the top ten with ninety six point six points and a seventy four percent chance of the playoffs. That's lower than what they got last year, but it's an improvement. If that's sort of weird to say, only because. When I'm projecting, it's obviously different than actual results, which have a wider distribution. Could you actually talk about, you just mentioned, like you, I think you said something like the Flyers have a 74.4% chance of making the playoffs. Could you talk, just obviously it's a radio show, but could you talk a little bit about how you generate those projections? Is it done by simulating a full season going forward and looking at pairwise games, or do you just kind of project um you know each team's total wins and then have a you know, there's obviously uncertainty around that and therefore there's some probability of making the playoffs how do you kind of do season level projections oh yeah it's definitely a simulation so i run the season 50,000 times and then i measure what their average projection was and how often they made the playoffs how often they went through each round and won the cup eventually and then could you talk to us about, um, without giving away your secret sauce, because obviously you're doing analytics and stuff, but just give us, so what goes into the model for game-to-game prediction? So let's imagine... Uh, oh, yeah, like how do you sort of measure te- uh, a team strength? Is it a, as simple as kind of, you know, an, an ELO-type model where you're just looking at, at you know, wins and losses? <clears throat> or do you take into account, you know, defensive versus offensive strength and, or goaltending, etc.? I built my model at the player level, so whatever players are on each team, that's how I measure it. Uh, I use a stat that I stole from basketball uh, a couple years ago called Game Score, where I basically just rate each player based on their most important box score stats. And then I look at the last three years, weighted by recency, age adjust, regress, all that, and then I get a player value in wins for or sorry value for each player in wins and i add it all up to get a team strength and then i feed that through the simulator and i have a win probability for every game and then it just goes through the season so let me ask you a question have you um uh for example have you run your method and just to give us a sense of how good it is at predicting have you used it for backcasting like if you had predicted last season's win percentages using your method but obviously not including its data, how would it have done? Like, did you take the data up until the 2017-18 season and use it to forecast last season? I've actually been doing this, using this model for the last three years, so I have that data already, thankfully. But uh, I think in 2016-17, it was one of, I think it was the, had the lowest error rate for average projection based on everything that I found. And, Last year was more middle of the pack because, honestly, I think it was just one of those years where a lot of things were strange. You had Vegas going to the Stanley Cup Finals. You had teams like Colorado and New Jersey who were also expected to be bottom five teams completely tanking. And when you look at like 
betting over-unders. Like, every year they have a point total that they expect for each team. Last year was the highest on record, I think, over the last 10 years for average error from the betting markets themselves. So could you talk to us maybe in the last few minutes we have about what you're working on going forward? So if we had you on you know, a year from now, which we probably will at the start of hockey season next year, um, and we say, Dom, what have you worked on in the last year? What are those things that are getting you excited about in terms from an analytics point of view over the next season? I, I Honestly, I don't know what to tell you. I barely know what I'm going to do next week. I don't really have plans that go that far. I'll probably be doing more of the same of just measuring players and teams and going from there well then let me reframe my question so you're a national nhl reporter Mm -hmm. so what how do you decide what is interesting to write about like if i were from a purely statistical point of view you could imagine saying wow this you know four standard deviation event just happened let's just write about that so how do you balance what's kind of interesting analytically with what kind of a national hockey audience will be interested in? Do you just report on events like, wow, that low probability event just happened, you won't believe it? Or how do you think about turning analytics into something you write? It's sort of like that because there's an overlap of things that are rare are interesting. But for me, it's some of that. And also I, I'm big on what other what consensus of the crowd feels and what their expectations are so if there is a player who's expected to do well and he isn't i usually look into that if there's a player who is supposed to be not very good and he's suddenly exploding then that's something as well and for teams are they for real or not if they're one of those teams that are projected to be bottom five and maybe they look really strong over the first month that's something to write about as well so i feel like that's most of what I look at is just gauging expectations and writing about things that go against those. Maybe one last question. You had talked about um, the way you compute kind of projections for your simulator is by computing individual player scores, if you'd like. Um, Mm -hmm. Who are the players you like this season? Who are the players that seem to have, that are going to, in your model, have high scores? And like, you know, if you had to rank the top five to ten players in the NHL this year upcoming, who do you see that being? Well, the obvious one is Connor McDavid, who's at the top by a landslide. And if you have a model that doesn't say that it's probably like a bit questionable it's one of those things where okay McDavid at the top things are are working uh number two is might be a bit more surprising because I do have that age adjustment but I'd have uh Austin Matthews there from the Toronto Maple Leafs because I think this year he's going to get a bigger role and a bigger opportunity to produce more and be a more effective force at five on five and then after those two, uh, it's the usual suspects of uh, Crosby, Malkin, uh, Taylor Hall, who won the Hart Trophy last year, and Nathan McKinnon, who came second. Um, the Bruins guys of uh, Marchand and Patrice Bergeron uh, on defense, Eric Carlson, Victor Hedman, Brent Burns. So pretty much who you expect, I think. Is there anything um, like... When you look at the entire hockey season, obviously an 80-game season, um, if 20 games in, 
your you looked at your model and let's say the prediction seemed to be off, like what's the amount of the season? We ask this about every sport. What's the amount of a hockey season that you, as someone that studies hockey analytics, would need to see to say, wow, maybe this team's better or worse than I thought? How far are the way in? Uh, I feel like usually halfway through a season I will start legitimately like wondering whether this team is for real or not. I remember... Honestly, sometimes it might be even longer than that because two years ago, the Ottawa Senators, I think, went to ended up going to the conference finals. And throughout the year, I just did not see it. I didn't think they were a very good team. A lot of people in the analyst community didn't see it, and they somehow made it. And then ever since, they've been an absolute tire fire and are now projected to be one of the worst teams in the league. And it's because they just happened to win games, which can happen hockey because things are so close when every game almost every game is between a 60 40 percent chance of winning for the favored team so a team like ottawa that looks like they're actually a bottom five team can go as far as they do depending on just getting the right side coin as often as possible and then the next year people expect regression and that's exactly what happens because they go closer to true talent level so even after 82 games, even after 20 playoff games, there's still some doubt that about a team, I guess, overperforming. But usually, if that is the case, it comes back to where they were supposed to be. So, Dom, in the, just one last question. You mentioned about the hockey community. What does it look like? What does the hockey analytics community look like? Are there 20 people like you, 200 people like you, 2,000? If you guys had a big... Uh, you know, conference on hockey analytics. How many people would show up, and where would these people be coming from? Oh, there's conferences. I think at least two or three per year, and I they usually get a good turnout of I want to say 100 people or so. But I think the community is probably a lot larger than that. I'm not I'm not really sure what the number would be, but uh, there's a lot of people that I follow that I respect and. There's people who message me every day who I know are within the community. So it's it's not small, but it's not. I don't think it's as big as other sports. Well, Dom, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. We've talking talking to Dom Lucichin. Dom is a national NHL reporter for The Athletic who writes about hockey analytics. He's also worked for Hockey News, The Nation Network, and Hockey Graphs. Uh, Dom, thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Thank you for having me. So that's been Dom. Um, maybe just in the last minute or two before we take our break, Shane. So kind of what caught your eye, if you'd like, about what he said? Anything surprising to you that, for example, neither the Capitals or Vegas were in his top teams? How do you think about that? No, I mean, I, I think, um, I, I guess that didn't really surprise me. I actually had somewhat of a similar opinion about the, both the Capitals and and, uh, and and Vegas, specifically the Capitals. I, I've, I've kind of enjoyed the irony because I've, I've kind of been – most you know sort of subtly cheering for the capitals for the last decade or so because they've always been you know one of these very good teams that couldn't quite put it together at the at the you know in the the level of the Stanley Cup pay, playoffs and, and finish it out and i i did kind of enjoy the irony that it, one of their weaker teams i think on paper Perth. was the one that finally did win Does the Stanley Cup Does it remind you at all i keep thinking of the parallels between them and the rangers that finally won it in the mid 90s you yeah. just knew that was not going to be a dynasty if they didn't win it then i mean that they hadn't you know they were just this was the mm. year and if they didn't win it you know 
that was about it. Yeah, no, and I mean it was it was similar. Like uh, I, I grew With up, Messi, wa- I, I, yeah, and I, and I grew up watching uh, the Calgary Flames. That was my hometown team in the in, in late eighties. And the Calgary Flames had a very good team for that entire decade, but had the misfortune of having to go through the Edmonton Oilers every time the playoffs came around. And the final time that they finally did make it through and, 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 and go on to the Stanley Cup Finals and then win the Stanley Cup Finals. Wasn't that in the late 80s It was in the late 80s, and really what it needed was Wayne Gretzky moving away from the Edmonton Oilers for that to happen. And so... Um, there is a lot of this kind of chance involved in hockey, and, and I think one of the more compelling things that Dom discussed is when you do do these kind of projections into the season, just how large the standard deviation is on hockey. And I think he described a lot of the fact, you know, factors that go into that, the fact that basically the talent level across hockey is, is very, I, w- I wouldn't say uniform, but there's not these giant disparity between teams like you see in basketball or baseball. And also the fact that hockey is such a low-scoring game, so each individual game is just very stochastic. You know, there's a lot of randomness involved. Since we're unlikely to talk a lot about hockey in the last half hour, let me ask you one last question, which we've talked about in other sports. Let me just quickly go through the major sports. Let's talk about hockey. How many teams would I have to give you in hockey for you to say, I have a 50% belief this team's going to win the Stanley Cup? <laughs> oh man, you'd have to. That's a lot, right? Yeah, like half of them. Oh, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Basically. All right. Yeah. How about the NFL? Uh, the NFL you to get would, to fifty percent to win the to win the Super, Super Bowl. Bowl. Um, I think I could probably take. I'd take like four or five teams. All right, so we've gone from half to yeah. four or five. Let's go to the NBA. Do you have to go beyond one? To get like, to half. Yeah, no, like two maybe. I mean, I, I let, let, let's conservatively say two teams. All right. Let's even say baseball. Now, of course, let's even just say next season. Let's forget this season. Next season. How many baseball teams do I have to give you to get to 50%? Uh, to get to 50%, I don't know, seven or eight. Okay. So yeah. just to show you, I do you, think hockey is fundamentally different. Is, yeah. The reason I was trying to bring this to life that yeah. way and to reinforce what Dom said and what you said is... You basically said half the teams yeah. in hockey to get the 50%, yeah. where yeah. basketball were like, do we actually have to go past the right. Warriors? And, and, and as far as kind of ranking those sort of four sports, it's not clear to me between baseball and football, you know, which one's more random, but it, it is very clear to me that basketball is the least random and hockey is the most random. Well, I can tell you what, there's not a lot of randomness here on Morton Moneyball. We're trying to deliver our best each and every week. So that's with been, certainty. With certainty. So that's been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We have a half, to, a half hour to go. Please join us right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. My three favorite topics. This is Eric Bradlow. I'm here this morning with my co-host and friend Shane Jensen. If you want to join the conversation, like lots of people have this morning already, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. And by the way, it's very interesting how at the eight thirty break we got a, a, a song from our producer Matt Datz. It was kind of a lot more mellow, and then of course we got a little more hard rock from our associate producer Danielle Bruno. I didn't. I'd noticed Danielle the difference in music between coming back at nine thirty and eight thirty. Thank you for that. Um, so let's. We haven't really spent any time, Shane, talking about the NFL yet. Um, there were a bunch of things that caught my eye in sports in the NFL this last week. I wanted to get your thoughts, and then, of course, about nine forty-five in the last fifteen minutes or so, we'll talk about the future and the NFL Moneyball matchup. So let's start with the following. So we have two undefeated teams left: the Chiefs and the Rams. What do you like about their prospects of going to the Super Bowl, 
Chiefs and Rams, because right now they're both. I mean, I think if they if we asked who are the best teams in the AFC and NFC today, yeah, it's the Chiefs and the Rams. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think I mean the Rams. I I kind of are, are doing as I sort of expected. I mean that that they looked like they were assembling a super team in the off season. I you know, uh, um. Get, assembling that they have an incredibly strong defense then bringing Brandon Cooks over for that offense and having you know Todd Gurley there as well and Jared Goff is playing out of his mind right now so no they look incredibly strong and I kind of feel like their division also we expected to be a little bit stronger and I think it's weaker than we thought that would be at least weaker than I thought it would be and so I think they're going to be you know, they're basically a lock, I think, to win that division now. And I think their record overall, they, they're they probably, because of that weak division around them... Um, are likely to have are the one seed. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. I think they're in the driver's seat as far as the bye week, uh, having the bye week in the playoffs and that number one seed. So I really like their chances going into the playoffs. Um, and... On the Chiefs side, I mean, I, the Chiefs also look amazing. Uh, the only thing that makes me cautious about the the couple things that make me cautious about the Chiefs is one, they did this last year. They were five and zero to start, the and season. we were talking about them going to the Super Bowl last year. Let and me they, just let me just point out one big difference between yeah. the four and zero Chiefs and the four and zero Rams. So the Rams have scored one hundred and forty points. That's impressive. That's thirty five a game. The Chiefs have scored one hundred and forty five points. Basically the same. Yeah. The Rams have given up 67 points. The Chiefs have given up 115. Yeah. This is exactly your point. The Chiefs do not have a very good defense, and I think that's going to hurt them. That plus, I mean, I really I have a deep respect for what Andy Reid does season to season. His teams always seem to make the playoffs. He's amazing at motivating his players and, and, and kind of collecting good personnel. But in the playoffs, I mean, we've seen it time and time again – there is a struggle there, and so uh, you know you you mentioned the Chiefs going to the Super Bowl. I can't put much money on that, really. Well, let's also think about who the Chiefs have played. Yeah, they've played the Chargers. They're okay. Yeah, they've played the Steelers. Even though the Steelers are one, two, and one, they're a reasonable team. Yeah. They've played the Forty ers Well, they're having challenges yeah. now that Garoppolo's injured. And they've played the Broncos. Now, that was a good win. And yeah. Denver, that was yeah. a good no, win. That was, extra, that was very impressive. Now, let's talk about the Rams. They've played the Raiders, the Cardinals, also the Chargers, and the Vikings. So, I mean, let me just say, they're both 4-0, but it's at the moment... It's not like there's a lot of eliteness in this no, schedule that either right. one Though, of them played. No, that's right. I mean, I, I, w- I would just sort of push back on that in that, you know, four games in the season, it's hard to know who the good teams are, and therefore it's hard to know good point. what strength, you know, whether there—is that really a discernible or, or, or difference in strength of schedule? Not clear to me. Well, let's t- let's, so let's talk about another thing. I'm sure many of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, and again, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And again, this is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen. I'm sure many of our listeners on Wharton Moneyball are saying, so you're talking about the NFL, you have to talk about what happened in the Colts-Texans game this week. So, And this is a, literally a Moneyball moment. So let me talk tell everybody the situation. So the game was in overtime with 27 seconds left. The game's tied, obviously, because the game's still going on in overtime. Yeah. The Colts have the ball fourth and four from their own 43-yard line. Let's be mm-hmm. clear, their own 43-yard line with only 27 seconds left. If they punt the ball away, let's assume 
there's probably like well over a 90, yeah, even nine, over a 90% chance this game ends in a tie. Now, if they go for it and don't get it, basically Houston needs 10 to 15 yards only, and they're in field goal range and 20-something seconds, so it's re- plausible that they could get that. Of course, as everyone knows, the Colts did go for it, didn't get it. The Texans got into field goal range and won the game. Now, of course, the Colts coach, by the way, Frank Reich, a name that you'll remember mm-hmm. from the old mm-hmm. Bills days, um, said, we don't play to tie. Yeah. Now, all of the analytics suggested they should not have gone for it, If you're, tr- but it depends what you're trying to maximize. Yeah. I would just like I your think it's thoughts. Like, I, I think I looked it up over the break. I, I think it's like some, the, the odds of converting a fourth and four is somewhere in the you know 40% to 50% range. But so it's also, not. But let's play that out. Let's say you convert it. Well, now you're at the 50-yard line with 20 seconds left, let's say. I'm making that up. I don't know that exactly, but let's say, well, there's no guarantee you're going to win from that position on the field either. No, that's right. This is different than, I'll make it up, you make this play with a 40 50% probability, and now there's a 90% chance you're going to win. Yeah, no, I agree. There isn't that either. And, and, I mean, you know, I mean, when the coach's statement is, we don't play to tie, I mean, it kind of takes all these probability arguments out of it. I mean... His objective function is 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 not stochastic or is not probability influenced, right? Um, but yeah, no, I agree. I think. What in do you think analy- Belichick would have done? Oh, that's a great question. Oh, um, I think he probably would have uh, played to tie if I if I had to guess. Just to let you know, thanks to our producer Matt Datz, um, he said at by going for it, they had a ten point four two percent chance of escaping with a win. Mm-hmm. So they went for let's call it a one with probability 0.0142, where they had a half with probability, let's say, near one. So just from an expected win perspective, they gave up basically about 0.4 wins. Well, I I would argue there's not a probability near one of the Texans turning that, like, lack of conversion into a win. Is that part of your calculation? no. No, no, I'm saying... If they had punted the ball, the yeah. Colts punt the ball. Oh, let's assume they're, they're getting they're getting almost tied. almost no, yeah, so they're getting yeah. a half a win. Yeah, yeah. And if they go for it, they had a ten point four two percent chance. That's right. So they basically gave up four tenths of a win by going for it. Yeah. So I'm just I'm just. What's your reaction to? Let me ask Griffin question. What do you think will be the ripple effect of this in the NFL going forward? Do you think this will be a license for other coaches to do it? Or do you think it'll be like, wow, it's, we it, really need to look at the analytics it's, it's, of this? It's interesting to say whether there is any ripple effect at all. I mean, one could certainly argue that this is an example of a risk tolerance that is not usually exhibited by NFL coaches. And if it encourages more risk tolerance, I think that could make for a more exciting game going forward. Or counter-argument would be coaches are going to look at this and be like, well, the context of that is something that, you know, is, is, is they'll be able to contextualize that enough and make it specific enough that it won't necessarily apply to other cases. Because, I mean, another argument could be here with Indianapolis Colts. It's not like the tie versus win is probably going to make a huge difference to their season. Well, the Colts, had they won the game, would have been 2-2. Two and two. Uh, now the loss, obviously they're one and three, <laughs> but you're right; they would have been one, two, and one with a tie. Yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. not it's not clear that the Colts. Well, this also gets relates to what Rick Peterson said. What what's the Colts' real goal for this season? Right. They they can't legitimately think right. they're a Super Bowl contending team. I'm not saying right. they can't win the Super Bowl, but probably not. Yeah, or, and, and and I mean they 
the way they're going to win the Super Bowl or even make the playoffs is investing in variance, right? And so under the investing in variance strategy, yeah, you go for that win. All right, let's talk about a couple other things that caught my eye on the NFL. So um, you do remember the Super Bowl last year. (laughs) Yeah, I've tried to block it out, but I do remember it. Right. Uh, There were two teams in the Super Bowl this year, the Eagles and the Patriots. Both are two and two. Yeah. So any thoughts about the Eagles and Patriots? Obviously, the Eagles lost in a heartbreaker. Uh, They had three fourth down opportunities to stop. I think it was the Titans last week uh, to win that game. Um, Of course, the Patriots, uh, you know, of course, they brought back from the brink of death. You know, we've always we like to bury Bill Belichick all the time. I like how that was labeled a must win game. Yeah, I mean, must. Uh, Yeah, but let's. All right. Anyway. How do you see the two Super Bowl teams right now at 2-2? Two and two? I see them as I see most Super Bowl-winning teams. They're going to regress. I mean, you know, to win the Super Bowl, you need to be good, but you also need a tremendous amount of luck, that luck coming in terms of actual stochastic game results as well as avoidance of injuries, etc. Um, and both those teams do not look as good as they did last season, in part because, you know, that luck tends to... That that luck component you can't guarantee going into the next season. And their talent level, you know, is probably a little bit worse than it was before. I mean, in the Patriots case, I think the talent level is discernibly Discernibly worse. worse. Um, You know, the Patriots are a little bit frustrating in the sense, uh, I, I mean, I can't really be that frustrated in the Patriots. But, you know, the one frustrating part of it is that I think they've, been assembling these teams over the last few years with a real kind of de-emphasis on defense, and it seems to be showing yep. this year, definitely. So besides the Eagles and Pats, those weren't the only—so I want to go through all the playoff teams from last—or the major playoff teams from last year. So we have another team. You agree the Vikings were—I mean, they could have gone to the Super Bowl last year. Oh, yeah? They're 1-2-1. Yeah. and one. Yep. Thoughts about them? Uh, I mean— Again, I, I I still think they will be one of the teams at the at the end of the season. I, again, they've lost a couple heartbreakers, like you know, sort of essentially coin flip sort of decisions in in, in this season. Do you agree the um, Falcons could have gone to the Super Bowl last year? Yeah, they could have. I don't see them as strong as the Rams, Eagles, and Vikings were last year. I'm not surprised that they did not. Remember, they lost a close game to the Eagles did. right in the yep, end zone. That's right. That's they're right. one and three. Yep. Yeah, and uh, I think they're kind of similar to the Patriots in that their defense does not seem all that great, but they certainly have an amazing offense. How about the Steelers at 1-2-1? and one? Yeah, so they're, they're kind of one of the more interesting cases. I really don't know what to make of that team because in some ways you could argue them into just being unlucky kind of in the games. I mean, you know, obviously that tie game with the Browns and stuff. Um But there's also si- really disconcerting signs there. Big Ben is a very—seems to be— has always been a little bit of a high-variance quarterback in terms of his performance, but seems to be increasingly high-variance. Obviously, they've been missing key personnel for a good part of the season, and that defense is getting lit up as well, and that's not something you typically see all the Pittsburgh Are you concerned at all that they're in a division with two three-and-one teams? The Bengals and the Ravens are both three-and-one. Yeah, no, no, I mean... So, I mean, you know, at some point, you start... Like, this is why when people say a must-win game for the Patriots, what they really mean was, no, it's not a must-win, but... The Dolphins would have been 4-0. The Patriots would have been 1-3. That's a three-game lead plus a tiebreaker over yeah. them. In some sense, you run out of games in the NFL to catch up. That's, that's what right. I think people no, were referring no, to. That's right. That's right. And I mean, obviously, divisional games count extra because of the potential like kind of head-to-head tiebreaker situations. Um, 
I think it's really interesting. And I mean, this does argue we were discussing prior to to focusing on football about, you know, kind of ranking the sports in terms of how random, you know, our predictions are uh, going into a season. Um, it, uh, the AFC North was a division that I did not think was going to be strong at all. I thought Pittsburgh would walk all over that division. I mean, come on, the Browns, the Bengals, the Ravens. But all those teams look excellent. I Look, I think it's an easy argument that you could make right now that that may be one of the strongest yeah. divisions in football right now. And one of right the divisions now. that we thought would be the strongest, I think, would be the NFC West with L.A., San Francisco, and Seattle at least. Um, but no, they look. That tight. is yeah. not a good division. Yeah, and uh, I mean, especially with Gra- I mean, Garoppolo going down is it has changed that division quite a bit. I think. And actually, let me let me give a little shout out and props. The AFC South. I mean, are you? Bu- let me say, are you buying or selling the Jaguars? Do you believe oh, in man. them at all? I don't even know with the Jaguars. I, I'll I'll buy them. That that defense is legit. Uh, so just based on their defense alone, I'm not buying Blake Bortles. I still am uncertain Bortles, about him. Look, there's a long history of quarterbacks that win Super Bowls. Yep. Not and let me just say, he's no worse than Trent look, Dilfer, we, Brad Johnson. I mean, I mean, we there's been quarterbacks that have yeah. won the Super Bowl that just aren't that good. And he, why not him? I mean, he's yeah. no worse than Trent yeah, Dilfer. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I mean, I do. Th- so I, I, I am buying the Jaguars as certainly a, a team, even if I'm not necessarily all that high on Blake Bortles specifically. So yes, the Jaguars are legitimate. Um, I don't know about the Titans. Are the Titans? Legitimate? I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm not. Either, I'm not. I'm buying the Jaguars over the Titans. Yeah, and, and I, I mean the Texans seem to be this always this perennial underperforming team. Yeah, they're they're great. They're one and three. Yeah. Well, Shane, that's of course backward looking. Yeah. But we're into the analytics business, so we do a lot of forward looking stuff, which means it's time for the NFL Moneyball matchup. Matchups. No, there's nothing wrong with uh, your radio. I just love this NFL music. Gets me all excited about the upcoming week. So, Shane, there's lots of interesting games this week. Yeah, there's a lot of games. interesting games. Yep, yep. Which games have caught your eye? I mean, I, I, in terms of, I, I think, you know, what we've been discussing as far as the kind of teams we're pretty sure are actually legitimate uh, playoff contenders, I mean, that... that Jacksonville Kansas City game that's going to be really interesting. Does so, it surprise you at all that the game's at Kansas City and it's minus 3 which means it's a neutral game it's an even game on a neutral field. Any that any surprise to you? No. I don't think so. I I I mean just because I think, you know, Kansas City has obviously impressed a lot of people, but this I I think people are kind of looking at that Jacksonville defense as something that could really shut down what Kansas City is doing. Um, is that how you see the game that's going? What on? I, that's how I see the you game. You do see the game going I, that way. I see. Well, I mean, I don't. I'm not going to necessarily. I, I'm. I, I didn't mean, say you're going to put a pile of money on the game. I'm just right. asking your opinion. I think I, 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 I really like what Kansas City is doing um, as, as far as their team goes. But you know, the, I think that Kansas City Denver game was telling. I, I, I thought that Denver defense really was able to stop yes, Kansas City for a good chunk of that game. Um, they they lost at the end, but it was very close. And I see Jacksonville's defense as that much better than Denver's defense. I agree with that. Um, and so I, I think Jacksonville, and, and I also see 
Kansas City's defense is not being able to contain Jacksonville's offense. So I actually, I, I really like Jacksonville in this one. Really? So that's really interesting because I think that's one of those sucker bets where I'm sure the Vegas money is saying, what? Kansas City only favored by three? Yeah. And so I, I think you're going to see a lot of money on that yeah. game. And I would be I, surprised I would, I if wouldn't... by game time that wasn't mm-hmm. a four or four and a half point spread. I, I think a lot of money is going to go on Kansas City. Well, let me give you one that caught my eye. Um, this has got to be the last stand for one of these two teams. Atlanta at Pittsburgh. Yeah. So, That's I mean, true. Atlanta's one and yeah. three. Mm-hmm. Pittsburgh's one, two, and one. One of these teams is essentially, forget the tie's not a loss, one of these teams is essentially going to have four losses at yeah. the end of this week. It's pretty hard to come back I agree. from that type of record. I agree, especially because, as we've both discussed, those two teams are in relatively stacked divisions. They're in very, very competitive divisions. So, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. I hadn't sort of been thinking about that, but that, that already looked like a compelling matchup because that... It's that just can, a compelling matchup That game two... could end up being like, you know, 50 to 45 or something like that. There may not be any defense going on in that game. So Yeah, I'm not a huge... I was at the Buccaneers game uh, when Pittsburgh visited the Buccaneers. The Buccaneers got shredded in the first half 30 to 10, um, but shut out Pittsburgh in the second half, and the Buccaneers do not have a great defense defense yeah um and pittsburgh scored 30 in the first half because uh fitz magic threw basically three balls directly into yeah. the hands of pittsburgh <laughs> well that, players. That, that's what you get with fitz magic that's, man. and that's what you get so i'm not a, i'm not buying pittsburgh I, yeah. I like atlanta in this game and i think pittsburgh's in real trouble i do too i i really do uh i think i th- i also like atlanta in this game um i think they are a little bit more of a complete team right now uh, than Pittsburgh is specifically. I, I, I don't think I th- don't think it's going to be. A, there's going to be much defense on either side. I just think um, Matt Ryan has a little bit less variance to his game than Ben Roethlisberger does right now. I agree with that. Maybe just one more Moneyball matchup, and then we should spend the last couple minutes just talking about baseball. I'll get your predictions on a few series. This is a game that wouldn't caught, catch a lot of people's eye, but you know, I'm just interested at Baltimore at Cleveland. I don't know why I'm interested in that game. But I think Cleveland's it's so in- great that we're interested in Cleveland like that. There's something watchable about Cleveland this year. No, I agree. They're I, not. They're more than watchable. Yeah, I mean, that's probably Look, the best. They could easily be a three and one team right now. Yeah, and I mean, that's a battle of I think probably. I mean, now that we've taken kind of Jacksonville out of out of it, the, the, this maybe the second and third best defenses in the AFC. I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're both excellent. Defenses. Who do you like in that game, though? I think Baltimore. I think Baltimore. I think I think the Are you amount surprised of offense, at all by only a three point line in that game. Um I mean it's at Cleveland, so uh I would probably give Baltimore a couple more points than that if if I was the one making the odds, but uh but I, I don't I don't think it's a, a particularly far off line. Well let's spend the last just a minute or two talking about baseball, just go back to baseball. Um Give me your prediction for tonight's game and Yankees uh, A's. Give me your prediction then uh, for the winner of that game going to the Red Sox. And give me your prediction for, I guess, the Astros Indians. Let's just start with the AL. All right. All right. Um, Let's first acknowledge that my rule for playoff baseball is it's all coin flips. So I'm, you know, when I I favor a team, it's, you know, 52 to 48 or something like that. I think the Yankees win tonight. Okay, then Yankees, um, Red Sox. It'll probably be some epic, you know, judge home run and like, you know, the that eighth would inning be, or that something would be like that. Wouldn't it? Um, and then I think um, 
I'll take the Astros over the Indians. I do think the Astros are, are a discernibly better team than the Indians. That doesn't mean much in playoff baseball, but I do think the Astros are better. I'll take the Astros over the Indians. Um, I can never go into a series and pick the Red Sox over the Yankees. I just Really? No, I can't. I mean, no. I, it's, it's Psychologically, it's, it's tough to do that. I think the Yankees squeak it out over the Red Sox. Um, and then between the Yankees and the Astros, I think the Astros beat the Yankees. So again. the Astros Second go year back to the World Series. Back Astros to the, back to the World Series. Anything in the NL? Any particular favorites in the NL? Oh, um, I guess I I really like the Brewers. I, I'm with Rick Peterson on this one. I think having I, I mean I'm not a huge again. It's all coin flips, but you know the fact that they're going in and they're really in sync right now and their hitters are hitting like crazy. I kind of like the Brewers going through. Um, Though, obviously, you know, the Dodgers are a very strong team as well. So probably Brewers, Dodgers, and, and then, then the you, Brewers will beat the Dodgers. Well, so, uh, so we're Shane talking Jensen about the, really high, pre- the highest rating World Series of all time. Maybe Milwaukee the lowest, against Houston. Maybe the lowest rated series yeah. of all time. So that's been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. I'd like to thank our producer, Matt Datz. I'd like to thank our associate producer and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. Of course, I'd like to thank my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. That's it's a been, delight. Yeah, it's been two hours of fun talking sports, statistics, and business. So some combination of myself, Shane, Adi, and Kate are here every week on Morton Moneyball. Until now and then, go Yankees. Enjoy your sports enjoy your statistics we'll see you next week on wharton moneyball for more insight from business radio please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu